So I spoke last night a little bit about some of the metaphors that we use through the liturgy in the in the machs or in the prayer book. And that some of these work and some of these don't, and that's okay. Some of them can be reconstructed, some of them can't, that's okay. We can find ones that work for us, we can skip words that don't work for us. One of the images of this High Holy Day experience, this Yom Kippur and Rosh Hashanah, is the imagery of the Book of Life and the Book of Death. That is a metaphor. It is a metaphor. It is not to be taken literally. And it's a metaphor that can be uncomfortable. It's a metaphor that may work and it may not work. Even the rabbis a long time ago had a tradition of understanding that we write ourselves into life or into death in life based on the choices we decide right now we really want to try to be about in the year to come. Even they were uncomfortable on some level with this metaphor. But the purpose of Yom Kippur, the purpose of wearing white, the purpose of fasting, of not anointing, of not engaging in intimate relations, stopping everything that connects us to life has a purpose. The point, if the metaphor works for you, fine. If the practices work for you, great. If they don't, it's okay. But the point shouldn't be lost on us. Do what works for you to get where the rabbis want us to be. And that's at a place where we don't take life for granted. That's the whole point. By not eating, by not drinking, by not doing those things that connect us to living and feed and nourish the body, we start paying attention a little differently to the body. We start to understand, oh right, We're so used to giving it what it needs, we just take it for granted. And we take it for granted that it works. Well, sometimes there are things that happen to us that remind us they don't always work so well. Some of us up here on this bima this year have really confronted what it means when your body doesn't work the way it's supposed to. But we can't rely on or wait for a health crisis to get there and so the rabbis give us the ways to get there on Yom Kippur this is incredibly countercultural. first of all to acknowledge that we're finite beings is incredibly countercultural. we're going to live forever and consume forever we're going to be young forever it is incredibly countercultural to stop the running around and the crazy and just be just it's hard to be present to the ultimate choices we make in our lives we are so busy rushing so busy running around there was a study done using seminary students so these are people who were dedicating their lives to community People who were dedicating their lives to ideals that they wanted to help bring about in the world through their careers. Their whole, their whole life was going to be dedicated to this. They were drafted into a study. And that study had some of them were told, you're doing this thing right now and you're going to another thing. And the other group was told the same thing. 
and, and one of the other things they were going to do was give a talk on the Good Samaritan. So about helping people, a talk about helping people. That's what the seminary students are thinking about. One group was told, you have plenty of time, don't worry, you probably should leave now, but you're fine. The other group was told, you need to hurry, you're already running behind. That, of course, was not the study, right? That's the setup. What's the study? On their way, there's somebody in a doorway who is clearly in distress, and they don't know why. They don't know what's up with this person. And the study was to see how many people, how many of these seminary students writing a talk on helping other people would stop and help this person. You ready? In low hurry, the students in the lowest hurry situation, 63% of them stopped to try to figure out what was going on or figure out if they could be helpful or figure out what this person might need. The medium hurry group, 45% of them stopped to see what was going on and see if they could be of help. The high hurry group, want to guess? 10%. 10% of seminary students about to give a talk on helping people. 10% stopped. What does that tell us? It tells us that when we're hurried, when we're feeling like we're pressed for time, we're in a rush, 90% of our wanting to help, out the window, gone. This is who we are in the world. So much less ready to help. So much less present. So much less ready to participate in what 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 might be needed around us when we feel pressed for time. As many of you know, and I spoke about it at Rosh Hashanah, I uh, study at the Hartman Institute every summer. And uh, so we, we were learning together, as you heard, as I taught from my amazing teachers on Rosh Hashanah. And so in the off time, and everybody's chatting, and I noticed that everybody keeps referencing 4,000 weeks. And I'm like, what, what, what? What is this? Like, and they're all talking about it, and they all get all animated and all excited whenever they say 4,000 ah, 4, weeks, 4,000 weeks. So finally, I like said, um, can somebody tell me what, what is up with the 4,000 weeks thing? So they, a, a bunch of my colleagues had read a book by Oliver Berkman called 4,000 Weeks. And this book is uh, a book that had so inspired them, they, they gave sermons on it last year. And, um, and as we were learning, they kept referencing Berkman's work. And so, of course, sitting in one of our sessions, I ordered it on Amazon so that it would be at my house when I got home from Hartman. And truly, it is a profound work. And it is, a, it is a book written by someone who used to be in time management. Somebody who was going to help you get through those to-do lists. Someone who was going to help you be more productive. Someone who was going to help you make the best use of every hour of every day. Until his conversion to not being that. And so he wrote this book, um, and if you live into your 80s, you are given about 4,000 weeks to live. That's how long we live if we live into our 80s. We know, of course, that is not the case for most people, but given that that's possible life expectancy, the book is called 4,000 Weeks. And I feel like that's exactly what Yom Kippur is designed to do, is exactly what Berkman does in this book. He asks us to just 
Stop and consider 4,000 weeks. He said, he talks about how young people today, families, everybody feels so crunched, so crunched for time. That time is a resource and we have terribly little of it. Malcolm Harris, a millennial critic, says it's now common to encounter reports, especially from younger adults, of an all-encompassing bone-deep burnout. In a world with dishwashers, microwaves, and jet engines, time ought to feel more expansive and abundant, thanks to all the hours that are freed up, but this is nobody's actual experience. Instead, life accelerates and everyone grows more impatient. It's somehow vastly more aggravating to wait two minutes for the microwave than two hours for the oven. Do you stand over the microwave watching the timer countdown? I do. 32, 31. God, do seconds go this slowly? Like what? Only when you're watching the microwave. And this, this is how it feels. Like, why does two minutes take so long? So we become more and more stressed. We become more and more 10 percenters when we feel that way, when we walk in the world that way. And there's a sense that despite all that we're doing, all of this activity, even for those who are uh, privileged, most of us in this room, we feel like we rarely get around to doing the right things. Like that somehow always gets put off. We sense that there are important and fulfilling ways that we could be spending our time even if we can't say exactly what they are, yet we systematically choose to do a whole bunch of other things instead. And this feeling, this feeling of wrongness is only exacerbated by attempts to become more productive. We try to get through tasks in order to somehow clear the list so that we can relax in some future time. Does your list ever get cleared? Because the minute you feel like you've cleared the list you're like oh right and there's Miriam I forgot to call Miriam right Miriam goes on the list the list is never cleared so what does that mean there's never that time that you're gonna just relax because it's all done so we constantly live in this incredibly frenetic get it done get it done get it done for some future time when we'll relax well that future time never comes Yom Kippur asks us to stop. Stop. Just be here right now and reflect on how is it we're living our lives. What is the character of our days like? What is our relationship to time? No one is suggesting there aren't things to be done. There's, there are things we have to get done and that's just how it is. That's fine. But they ask us, the rabbis, this day to stop focusing on some future time that isn't coming. Berkman says that, okay, this can be kind of a morbid way, like the future never comes. We never have any second of any future guaranteed. How is that a healthy approach to life? And Berkman says that this is the only way for a finite human being to live fully. To relate, to relate to other people as full-fledged humans and to experience the world as it truly is. What's really morbid from this perspective is what most of us do most of the time. 
instead of confronting our finitude, which is to indulge in avoidance and denial. We feel like we do things because we have to. It's what's done. It's what's expected. Life is usually more comfortable when you spend it avoiding the truth in this fashion, but it's a stultifying, deadly sort of comfort. It's only by facing our finitude that we can step into a truly authentic relationship to life. Then we can make choices about the limited time that we're granted, the limited time that we're given. Our confession that we do, our vidui from the prayer book, is partly to remind us of the things that we do, the ways that we're not who we want to be. When we think we have all this way to prepare for a future, a future that may or may not come, but one without to-do lists we know is not gonna. Yom Kippur is this day designed by the rabbis in their great wisdom to let us do it together because it's hard. It's hard to admit we don't know how much time we have. That's really hard to admit. It's hard to admit we'll never get it all done. We're always going to be disappointing somebody. That's really hard. So we do it together. There is so much pressure. And especially on our young people. I see how so many young people are here. And it makes me so happy. Good on you, parents. Good on you, grandparents. Good on you. Because guess what? They need it more than anybody. We, okay, we'll figure it out or we won't. Who really cares? They, they deserve better than what we're communicating to them in this culture right now. That their inner life doesn't matter. That their mental and emotional health doesn't matter. That time to play ends when you're a kid. That it ends We don't teach them that the most important thing they can do is pursue their own curiosity well into old age because that's what keeps us young and vital and wanting to be alive. We tell them produce more, produce more, do more. What? He's a convert from that. He's like, no, because A, it doesn't work. B, it produces miserable humans. Our young people are so anxious. They are more anxious, more lonely than ever before. That you bring them here, good on you. That some of them choose to show up when they don't have to now because they're at UCLA. (laughs) Is a wonderful thing because this is where we get a countercultural message. And this needing to produce, this needing to keep going, this needing to be on time, this needing to do more, be more, all of it. He says it has an an especially striking effect on the experience of everyday annoyances, on my response to traffic jams and airport security lines, babies who won't sleep past 5 a.m., and dishwashers that I apparently must empty again tonight, even though I think you'll find I did so yesterday. I'm embarrassed to admit what an outsized negative effect such minor frustrations have had on my happiness over the years. It's true, and it's getting increasingly true. He says, it can seem 
If you take this perspective, if you look at 4,000 weeks, if you do the work that Yom Kippur, the very difficult work Yom Kippur asks us to do, if you turn your attention instead to the fact that you're in a position to have an irritating experience in the first place, matters are liable to look very different indeed. All at once, it can seem amazing to be there at all, having any experience in a way that's overwhelmingly more important than the fact that the experience happens to be an annoying one. When we can get it that we are so blessed, all the things that had to happen in the cosmos for each and every one of you to be sitting there, for us to be up here, all the things that had to happen, that is an incredible blessing and miracle. And oh my gosh, then the microwave, is it so irritating? You have a microwave. Look at that. That's pretty fast, two minutes. To heat a whole meal? Amazing. It shifts our perspective. And this is what the rabbis invite us into on Yom Kippur. Then we can choose where we want to focus our time. We can choose what it is we want to pursue. We can maybe even find some time to play. Time to play, to enjoy, to get lost in something just because we can. When we really take it seriously, oh my God, we're here. We have the opportunity to have experiences. Maybe I don't want to do what I'm supposed to today. Maybe I just want to pursue something that puts me in flow, that puts me in that state of not even being aware because I love it so much. And guess what? We don't have to justify why. Or what good it does in the world. We can do stuff or be about stuff or not do stuff just because that's what we're choosing to do in this moment. So we think we're making all this choice by being very productive and winding everything up. You're getting very organized, but but really we're not. We're doing what everyone else expects us to do or what we think we're supposed to do. We're being asked to drop into the absolute wonder These are called the yamim no ra'im, the days of awe, the days of wonder. We're supposed to wonder that we're even here. And then make decisions about what we really want to be about at any given point in any given day. And then, oh, 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 there it is. There it is. Okay, $50 to your favorite charity. But that was my next point. So thanks for the setup. (laughs) Ever taken one of those out and come up for air about an hour and 45 minutes later? Right? Ever open a device and wonder where two and a half hours went? Well, this is a common experience for us as adults who kind of go, "Uh uh-oh. But our young people, this is how they function. They're completely used to this. And so you might think, okay, well, we can get better about limiting our time on these devices and being exposed to these things. That's fine. And we can. We can set little alarms and all those things that tell us too much time, Amy, on the internet, whatever. Okay. And we think, okay, then that fixes it because whatever I'm doing, I can decide how much time and then I'm But here's the problem. What we do, what we're exposed to, how things work on the internet impacts who we are and how we see the real world when we come out of that. 
That's the real issue. I spoke at Rosh Hashanah about unintended consequences of the technological revolution. This is one of them. That we think we're just checking up on our friends on Facebook or Insta. Why don't they put the gram on the end of that? I really don't understand it, but whatever. So Facebook, Insta, and uh, what's that other one? Snapchat. Thank you. So before his... TikTok. Thank you. Thank you. Exactly. So before his conversion, uh, our friend Oliver Bertman said... preach it was impossible to drink from twitter's fire hose of anger and suffering of news and opinions selected for my perusal precisely because they weren't the norm which was what made them especially compelling without starting to approach the rest of life as if they were the norm which meant being constantly braced for confrontation or disaster or harboring a nebulous sense of foreboding It's been obvious for some time, of course, now that all of this constitutes a political emergency. It is impossible for us to look at things that, and we know because it got out, people, the secret got out, that the the algorithm, what is it called? Algorithm. The algorithm is designed to outrage you. And the more outraged you might be by something, that's exactly what gets pushed to you next. So we think that has no impact on what we expect from the world we actually go out in. The world we go out in from our perception is shaped by what we just heard and what we just read about those idiots. That shapes our expectations of interactions with people we disagree with. It shapes our expectation about what we're going to see and experience in the world today from other people. It's not helping us be a more civilized, respectful, engaged citizenry. It's detrimental to our own mental and emotional health. We have to start thinking not only about how much time we spend on these things, but what it's doing to us. And we have to choose big-time filters to prevent some of this from being a constant drip into us of cynicism and despair and being ready to to fight because that's what we're so marinating in in social media maybe the most helpful point that i took from uh berkman's reflections on 4000 week 4000 weeks is that also we have an incredibly short amount of time an incredibly, insultingly short amount of time. So guess what? And just hang with me, hang with me. We really aren't going to make that much of a difference. We really aren't. No matter how hard we try, no matter how busy we want to be, no matter how much we take on, we live a really short life and we really aren't going to impact that much that is not depressing and I know you think this counteracts my Rosh Hashanah message but it doesn't because if we can just relax into the fact that we are not going to accomplish all that much or impact all that much we are freed up to really pay attention to what we can impact 
We can then just choose to do a couple of phone calls, banking for our favorite candidate. We can actually send a check to Planned Parenthood. We can actually do some things and focus on getting those things done that really can have our lives make a difference. Yehuda Kurtzer, I talked to you on Rosh Hashanah about Yehuda Kurtzer saying, talking about dreaming and dreaming big and we're thinking too small. He's right. Dreaming, though, is different from hoping. Kurtzer says, hoping is open to disappointment. Not so much dreaming. Not when we dream big. We can dream big and act small and do the things that we can to, can to contribute to the dream becoming a reality. To hope, says Derek Jensen, for a given outcome is to place your faith in something outside yourself and outside the current moment. The government, for example, or God, or the next generation of activists, or just the future to make things right in the end. If we give up hope, we simply do the work. We make sure salmon survive. We make sure grizzlies survive. When we, when we stop hoping the situation will somehow not get worse, then we are finally free, truly free, to honestly start working to resolve it. And when we do that, when we give up and realize we have a very short time and we spend so much of it in so many ways that are not helpful to ourselves, to each other, to life on this planet. He says, then what you find is you're okay. The civilized you died. The manufactured, fabricated, stamped, molded you died. The victim died. And the you that remains is more alive than before. More ready for action, but also more joyful. Because it turns out that when you're open enough to confront how things really are, you're open enough to let all the good things in more fully too. On their own terms. Instead of trying to use them to bolster your need to know that everything is going to turn out okay. Psalm 144. A human being is like a momentary breeze. A person's days as a quickly passing shadow. And Psalm 90. We come and go like grass, which in the morning shoots up and renews, and by dusk withers and dries up. This is an invitation the rabbis give us, the liturgy gives us, that poetry from the Psalms thousands of years old gives us an invitation to live every moment we're given more fully, more consciously, more free to choose, more free to be present, more free to find our bliss our curiosity to lean into our hurts and figure out the best way to start healing them. Because this life, says Berkman, is absurdly, terrifyingly, insultingly short. But that isn't a reason for unremitting despair or for living in an anxiety-fueled panic about making the most of your time. It is a cause for relief. You get to give up on something that was always impossible. 
the quest to become the optimized, infinitely capable, emotionally invincible, fully independent person you're officially supposed to be. Then, when that happens, you can roll up your sleeves and start work on what's gloriously possible instead. So may it be for us. Shana Tova.